attorney at law, advocate at heart. Christmas is coming, and I know we're all finishing up our last minute Christmas shopping, but you know what's even better than presents? It's the gift of knowing how to elect upstanding public officials to make decisions that affect our daily lives. So my next guest, Jean Berardelli, is a New York-based trial attorney with a ton of experience representing candidates that are facing election law issues. He serves as a Newsmax insider and author of multiple Newsmax op-eds. He is also the author of Snooks, Crooks, Liars, and Scoundrels, a field guide to identifying political buffoons. So please, sit back, sip your apple cider, and enjoy. <laughs> I feel the pain. Oh my gosh, technology, it's great when it works. Jean, I'm so glad that you could hop on tonight to talk to us about your book because I was super excited after reading it. And I have a lot of listeners who are politicos and also history buffs. And the combination of the two, I think, are going to love this. So could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and about your book? Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. I know I was a pain in the butt with my schedule, too. So getting <laughs> together like this is really cool. Uh, okay, so a little bit about me. Um, I got started in politics probably right out of law school. I was in my, my 20s or so. Started out as counsel for my local civic association. Uh, doing a lot of good work there, trying to get a park built, which ultimately ended up getting built. We raised like $4 million for it. It was a lot of fun and kind wow. of political bug going. Uh, I ended up joining yeah. the Republican Party in Brooklyn, New York. Because the Republican Party in New York is ba was basically non-existent at the time. Uh, it was really trying to start up again. We were outnumbered, I think, for every eight Democrats, there was one Republican in Brooklyn. Very much wow. the same now, but we were winning races. And I got together with a, a really great group of friends that came out of that organization. I was elected uh, the uh, law chairman of the party there, which means that I was responsible for making sure that every candidate got on the ballot. And if there were any uh, recounts or anything like that, I handled that sort of litigation and you know, I got to handle a couple of recounts. Some election law. Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And, you know, we actually won some races here and there, which was pretty cool. But it also yeah. exposed me to a lot of kooks and a lot of crazies and a lot of people that you would not want to be stuck sitting next to at a, at one of those rubber chicken dinners that you always talk about in politics <laughs> and things like that. So it got me and my friends thinking about you know, the types of people that get involved in politics. What are their motivations and what do they do? So much yeah. so it became a topic for a uh, couple of podcasts that we created, one of which was called uh, Behind Enemy Lines, uh, about Republicans being in deep blue New York, New York City, uh, that actually yeah. got on the radio. And we were on like five different stations. And one of the segments we did was this idea of buffoon of the week talking about, you know, stupid people in politics and who was the <laughs> dumbest newsmaker of the week. And it just blossomed from there. The book, uh, Schnooks, Crooks, Lies, and Scoundrels, that I just wrote, is sort of a love letter to all those conversations I had with my friends that I just wanted to m memorialize and not forget that yeah. time that we all had together. Wow. Some of the things that you do of when, you're, uh, when you're involved in institutional politics is not only take care of public offices, but also party positions. Every county party yeah. across the nation has, you know, local district leaders and local county committee members. And a lot of times there are people who may work at the Board of Elections and things like that. They have a great zeal for politics, but maybe not the brain for politics. And it's sort of like, oh, bless your heart. And a lot of them think that they're qualified for office, which, again, as long as you're not like, you know, a rapist, a criminal, and, and believe me, we've had some of those that ran as well, uh, that slipped through <laughs> the cracks. Um, as long as they weren't like that, of course you were embraced with open arms because there were so few Republicans in Brooklyn, New York that wanted to actually run for office and get 4% of the vote. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there were plenty of uh, kooks and crazies that, uh, way too many to really talk about. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love how your book also dives into a lot of the historical perspective that there is. Um, you know, you mentioned that when you were working on um, election law in New York, that there were a lot of people who would slip through the cracks who had horrible 
histories. And I remember reading in your book, there was one guy who it's like he had quite a rap sheet and yet he not only got elected, but then he got reelected. I think, can you remember his name? Um, Absolutely. Um, well, it's it's more of a historical story. I, I I think you're talking about Robert Potter. uh, Yes. Is from, I believe he's from North Carolina. Uh, he ended up running for office. I think it was in Halifax, North Carolina. And the thing about when you when you look back at history and our founding fathers and the formative years of our country, we sort of romanticize it, right? We were, you know, yeah. patriots fighting <laughs> for freedom and all that stuff. But fast forward thirty years later, you have a, a new nation. You're going to have people of different backgrounds looking to run for office, especially at local levels. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Halifax, North Carolina, in the 1820s was sort of like the wild west of politics, uh, to the point where if you were running for uh, what the equivalent of, I guess, state assembly is now, brawls would break out at the polling center between one candidate and their supporters and the other candidate and their supporters. <laughs> where people would be murdered and stabbed and injured. What particularly with this guy, Robert Potter, the election was canceled because him, and I think the other guy's name was Bynum, his last name, got into such a brawl that the election was just canceled and the, the area didn't have a representative that year. So when we like to talk about we, we live in interesting times in politics, they are nowhere near as interesting as some of the things I uncovered for the book. Yes, yes. I, um, it's crazy because, like, you know, the most that you'll hear of anything near physical altercation, like, I'd say usually it's on the lower levels, like the state level, the local level. And it's it may be, like, getting in each other's face screaming or something like that. But it's never, like, an all-out assault or anything near the things that we read about in your book and the crazy stories. Like you said, it's it's a wild history of politics, especially in the founding years and I, there were so many stories in there that I had never heard in school. I had never learned. Yeah. Just imagine if, like, little stories, like little asides were taken during your American history class to talk about, oh, yeah, there was this guy who ran for office, and a brawl broke out, and nobody got elected. And by the way, that same guy got elected to Congress a couple of years later after being in jail. I mean, if, if those stories came out, I think people would be a lot more interested and be like, Tell me more about this and, and maybe yes. you'll get some people's attention a little more. Absolutely. I think that's why but you have something like Hamilton that comes about that has so many historical inaccuracies. But I think what really sold people on it, whether they knew about the inaccuracies or not, was that it was this personalization and humanization of these larger than life characters that in a way that kids and adults alike had never heard of. And little facts and and storylines mixed throughout that were either based in fact or that weren't, but that humanized the character and the historical figure in a way that hadn't, hadn't been, hadn't been before. I'm a big fan of capturing people's natural curiosity. I think what Hamilton did for this generation, I think maybe 1776 did for my generation where you see the, the wit and humor of the person portraying Benjamin Franklin and the stubbornness of John Adams. And you realize these were actual people with personalities and personalities <laughs> conflicted even then uh, that you would think, oh, this guy's being annoying again. He's talking about, you know, independence, independence or, you know, whatever the, situ- the many situations in Hamilton. I absolutely, you know, love seeing Hamilton bring in people to be more interested in politics because I think politics demands your attention because otherwise you're left on the sidelines of your own life in in letting other people decide things for you. So anything that piques a person's natural curiosity, I'm all for, no matter what the political persuasion of it is. Yes, yes. There's a lot that's like a parallels between the founding years and inner city turmoil of today. Uh, Because you think about like that line where it's talking about like how long, that how short that the lives were back then. I never thought I'd live past 20. Where I come from, some get half as many. And, you know, it's like, oh, they're super short when you look at, like, inner city violence and everything. And I think in that same way that, like, your book really takes a lot of these historical stories and says, like, hey, this, like, craziness did not start today. This division, this uh, divisiveness, this hostility, all of this, it did not start with today's politics. Like, this has been happening for a very, very long time. (laughs) 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think the uh, the idea that we live in unique times is probably one of the biggest lies that we're, we tell ourselves all the time. The second biggest wow. lie we tell ourselves is that the past was always romanticized as being so much better than it is today. And that's not really mm-hmm. true. When, when you look, just if you look back at the history of journalism and you're worried about, oh, things are so biased now and, you know, there's partisan media and all this. That's been going on for over a hundred years, and pe- I mean, you can go back to Thomas Jefferson talking about partisan media and media attacks against him to the point where he wanted to go back at people in journalism. So these, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to these ideas uh, that we seem to be struggling with today as well. I, I think technology adds a new wrinkle to those problems. Uh, the news of today travels at lightning speed as compared to the news of a hundred years ago. Through which filter are we looking at what's going on? What is the lens that we have over it? And how many lenses are between us and the facts? And that's more of a challenge today because of all the people out there that have access to media, that have access to webcams, that have access to blogs, because everybody thinks their opinion is the right one. And we have to sift a little harder to get to the, the crux of a matter, the facts of a matter, in order to become more informed. Would you say that the proliferation of technology like also adds to how we're capturing the buffoonery a lot more? I mean, if you think about like if you think about like in recent history of yeah, <laughs> you have Nixon and Watergate. You can start you can start from Nixon going to Clinton, going to Trump and all points yes, in between. Yes. Absolutely. Let's just talk about in, in my lifetime. I'm a fossil. I'm in my mid forties right now. And uh just going through my lifetime, you had three major news networks in, in the 80s, really. You had ABC, CBS, and NBC. And you had Fox kind of going up, and you had whatever independent local news you had in, in your area. Think about the, the lens that you were getting your news from. It would either be from a daily newspaper or one of those network broadcast news that would last for about an hour, and then you'd be done with the day and you move on to you know, the Tonight Show or whatever, you know. Then with the advent of cable, you had national cable news sort of crop up, and the coverage revolutionized there, especially when it came to issues of war and international conflict. I remember watching, uh, you know, Operation Desert Storm, uh, just enraptured by the the in-real-time footage of missiles going off and, and, and watching war actually occur as it's happening. Uh, that was a huge jump forward. And then with the uh, increase in technology of, you know, information access through the Internet, uh, once you got past all the cat videos, you ended up with a 24-hour news cycle where news yeah. breaks all the time. And it's not mm-hmm. just the gatekeepers of legacy media doing it. News can be broken by anyone on the Internet, anyone with a blog, anyone with a webcam, people who don't want to intentionally break news can break news uh, nowadays. And then, you know, they become a household name for the next 15 minutes. So the way we consume media definitely highlights... I have have this problem of taking questions and answering them for 20 minutes. This idea that buffoonery becomes more under a microscope because of that 24-hour news cycle is absolutely true. We know the public schedule of every elected official way more than we did even 10 years ago. Um, yeah, it definitely puts a microscope on all these people a lot more that even the smallest missteps can then be magnified and exploited by those who are adversarial to them as well. Yes, yes. And I know that there's been a lot of and I mean, by the way, feel free to talk, 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 because I I, I think that you're bringing up a lot of a lot of interesting points. But um I think that, you know, like we said, that this this technology is everywhere. I think that this news cycle, even though that from a conservative perspective, there were some uh, some large losses, particularly on the local level um, where I'm at in Ohio. Uh, but I think that there were also a, a lot of great instances that we saw of um, individuals being unprepared for what always having that technology at hand really means. I think there were some severe missteps by the Abrams in particular that um, were caught at events or whatever. Things that she's saying where it's like, 
the buffoon mindset gets you so it has you so um in in just a lane of just saying whatever whatever comes to mind just free flowing from brain to mouth that it's like when it's captured and you hear it back i sometimes wonder like when when you're talking like did you did you hear yourself when you were talking it doesn't make any sense you're saying that um that uh ultrasound has been uh created by men in order to make women think that abortion is wrong. She was saying that it's actually a manufactured sound. It's like, how can we get more conspiracy theory than that? Like, <laughs> crazy. And, and you know what bothers me? People are imperfect. They make mistakes. What I'm less forgiving of is the double down or the lack of contrition when it comes to recognizing that I could have made a mistake. I yeah. was wrong in what I said. Maybe I got caught up in the heat of the moment. Maybe I let my passion mm-hmm. overcome me. But there's no contrition afterwards. I mean, a good ex- here's a good example. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence just came out saying in, in media how before Hunger Games, there were no real action roles for female leads. And here I am thinking to myself, Sigourney <coughs> Weaver in Alien, Angelina Jolie in uh, Tomb Raider, uh, Mila Jovovich in the Resident Evil franchises. I mean, th- there are so many I can think of. So many. And I, I got into like, okay, this is buffoonery. But she came back the next day and said, that's not what I meant. I didn't really mean that. Of course, there were all these people. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'll give you credit for coming back and saying, okay, I stuck my foot in my mouth on that. When's the last time you heard a politician say of their own volition, without being pressured for days upon days, saying, you know what, I misspoke. I could have said that a little better. I could have you know, chosen my words a little more carefully, and I'm sorry for making that mistake. You don't hear yeah. that. It's like you have yeah. to die with the lie, or you have to die with the mistake. And that, to me, is buffoonery, because unless you recognize your own imperfections, you're going to walk around with a, a, a shocking lack of self-awareness, like Stacey Abrams, We'll just go around thinking, you know, uh, you know, yeah, sure. I, I can say abortion is just an issue for poor people because that'll mean that, you know, poor people can't afford babies and they should just kill babies instead. I mean, the, when you hear yourself say that, you're like, oh, my God, that's ghastly. But they're so right. caught up in their own BS and they're caught up in their own self-image and they're caught up in reaching the goal of getting elected. That the way they get right. there, the agenda gymnastics that it takes to get there or the self-image you must portray in order to get there turns you into a hypocrite later on to the point mm-hmm. where the line between truth and reality and, you know, the goals that you're trying to reach is completely gone. Oh, my gosh, that's scary. Yeah, like you said, it's. I love that you pointed out it's not so much the initial gaffe that is the issue. It's the refusal to apologize afterwards because... The lack of contrition is more, even more reflective of the deeper issues than is the initial uh, mistake that's made. Um, that's that's such a great point. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's tons of examples in the book. I, I remember there's one. Uh, so if we're talking about people who like sort of double down on their buffoonery, I always think of someone, and this isn't from the book. But I always think of someone like Anthony Weiner, who was a representative oh gosh, that yeah. represented me in Congress <laughs> at one point. At the core of the situation with Anthony Weiner was really a personal in- issue of infidelity. Yes. What made it a national story was his denial that it happened, claiming that he got hacked on his Twitter and that it wasn't him. By doing that, it went from being a personal act of infidelity to now you're a liar and you, you destroyed your public trust. And that's yeah. why you need to go now. Because if you're going to lie about something like this, you're going to, you've been lying to me about other things. That, to me, is a yes. great example of, of doubling down. I also think uh, someone, you know, and flip it onto the Republican side. When Ted Cruz went to Cancun during the freezing weather they were having in Texas, it was, you know, he said initially it was for a summer vacation that he was going to come right back. But it turned out he didn't have the return tickets until after he, ma- he actually said that. I love Ted Cruz, but I got to call him out for it. You know, yes, he was mm-hmm. contrite afterwards, but that doubling down 
is also a betrayal of public trust. And, you know, the left rightly called him out for that. So, yeah, that second act usually is what gets people in trouble. Because other before that, you can forgive a human being for a lot of things. Um, yeah. You know, short of, you know, really, really egregious acts, those irredeemable acts I talk about later on. But if you don't give people the opportunity to express that forgiveness or, you know, to get that, you know, one break that everyone seems to give everyone that second chance, mm -hmm. then you're just really sealing your own fate. Yes. And I love that, you know, like you said, you just said that there's examples on the Republican side. I love that the book is an equal opportunity buffoonology. It, it examines their Democrats examines their Republicans. It talks about black, white, Italian. You know, it doesn't it doesn't shy away from calling out uh, the buffoonery that is happening at all levels, because really, um, you know, as is mentioned, is the goal of the book. The goal is to inform us so that we can prevent this from happening to not only see it in ourselves for any who are considering running for office in the future, but also for those of us who are um boots on the ground or who are citizens, who are voters, to really vet our candidates thoroughly. Um, with these character traits and tendencies of every human in mind, um, I, I love that this becomes a guide to us uh, fighting buffoonery. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I, I make no bones that I am a Republican and I'm conservative in many ways. Uh, and I make sure that I, I tell people that when I get into this book, mm -hmm. there are clearly more examples of uh, Democrats and liberals making making, uh, you know, large magnitude acts of buffoonery. But it would be dishonest to say that buffoonery and partisanship go hand in hand. Buffoonery knows no one party. Um, yeah, there, there are idiots on every side. I, I remember from my, my own days in politics that there were many buffoons that were on my side in Brooklyn, uh, wearing, like I say, the, the laundry of partisanship. You know, they're wearing our jerseys. You know, they're on our team. And I went around telling people, you know what? I liked them. I didn't like them when they were against us. I didn't like them when they were for us or they were fighting with us or whatever, because they're, they're just, their heads are in the wrong place. If we start acting in a way that calls everybody out equally on the same scale, and if we're able to identify red flags like we do in relationships, oh, it's a red flag if this A, B, C, and D happen. If we have the same red flag awareness for candidates, I think that voters may actually start voting for the right person. Yes, partisan laundry is a great starting point for determining whether or not you want to support that person. But when you get down to it, you might elect a criminal in your own partisan laundry. Or you might elect someone that's really, really good and reasonable wearing the other team's colors. That's yeah. what voting should be about. It's about vetting that candidate. And if that, if you're able to see what a candidate truly is all about based upon certain traits and characteristics of their personality, it might save us in the long run from electing the next batch of political buffoons. Yeah, absolutely. Um when, as you mentioned, there's like, there is a tendency for there to be more examples that are on the Democrat side and the liberal side than there is on the conservative or Republican side. Would you kind of base that, um, that, uh, disparity in how much that liberal and, and Democrat are arguments tend to be built upon like highly emotional basis? Do you think that that contributes to, why there are more examples there than on the other side that has a tendency to base it in statistics and facts. And I'm not saying that, you know, I think that each has a lot to learn in making persuasive arguments and communicating from the other. I think that a lot of times as conservatives, we can tap more into um, understanding where people are coming from emotionally and having that empathy. And the other side can use a lot of help with um, digging into those facts and statistics and factual basis for for arguments on the other side i think each can learn a lot from each other but do you think that that emotional basis kind of contributes to it oh i think absolutely i think emotion is the enemy of reason sometimes and that, that's absolutely true uh and i think that your point is well taken that both sides can learn from each other 
in interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. you know, ben Shapiro saying facts don't care about your feelings is a great point. But at the same time, we have to remember we're all in this together. Yeah. This nation rises and falls together, right? So if you can just be empathetic to the person and go after their ideas while not going after that person, I think conservatives will get a lot further. And on the flip side, I think that if Democrats started looking more objectivity rather than subjectivity and started to interact with people on the other side of the aisle at that level, I think we have a lot better chance at communicating with each other like we used to. Uh, there's, there's a lot that both sides can learn from each other. I don't think that being a robot is the way to avoid being a buffoon because you're going to miss, you're going to miss some passionate emotional point uh, that should have been obvious to you. I also don't think being a raging emotional monster is the way to reach people either. You have to have yeah. a balance of both. If you have a balance mm -hmm. of both, you're going to end up being more reasonable, not only in your own arguments, but in countering any arguments that come at you. I, I really believe the worst thing we do as conservatives is we demonize the other side. We turn them into boogeymen. But if we just realize that they are parents, they're people like us. Uh, I have a I have a a, a frenemy relationship with many Democrats, especially pr even prominent national ones, who I interact with on the basis of, "Hey, how are your kids doing? Oh, we're both from Brooklyn. Don't you like going to Third Avenue and and going to this store? Things like that." That I'm able to then say, you know, when you make this political point, here's what I think, and they come back at me with their point. And it makes them more human in dealing with them. You don't want to build up your enemies into boogeymen because then you forget the human aspect that their supporters have for that person. Treat them like every other person in the world and you'll be able to deconstruct their arguments and still be able to hopefully part as friends when you're done. Buffoonery comes a lot from partisanship in that sense because people are so up in their feelings or they're so up in their facts that they forget that the other side is someone that's going to have to live with the decisions that are made just as much as you, excuse me, as you are. And yeah. uh, maybe we need to bring some of that back together. Yeah, for sure. I, um, it's, I think that, like you said, when you get kind of mired in those feelings, either on either side, you know, for someone who is really mired in the rational, I think that, um, it can, it can lend itself to a kind of moral superiority that's running in your head that like, well, I know I have a fact, so I know I'm right. Or if you're on the emotional side, then it's, um, you know, I know that my heart's in the right place. However it looks, there's that superiority and it seems to be kind of blinding. And then it seems to kind of lead to what you've discussed in the book is the kind of buffoon that becomes um, a mental gymnast in how that they, make their arguments. They're willing to flip-flop and switch around anything that there is um, in order to make their point. And because there's no, when you become a gymnast like that, there's no running rules that are really guiding the arguments that you're making. You find yourself making uh, a lot of buffoon moments because people are calling you out on something that you said before that was adhering to one rule, but you're not adhering to that rule anymore. And something that you say recently had um, an arms dealer that was traded for Brittany Griner. And we had a politician say that she was justifying the exchange and saying this person actually never really killed anybody. Whereas before, when she was uh, upholding and supporting uh, gun control legislation, that seems to go under the argument that it's not, uh, it's not the people that kill people, it's the guns that kill people. Versus um, defending the switch and saying that it's not the it's not the guns that kill people. It's the people that kill people who bought the guns from him. So, do you think that there is that kind of connection between um, the the emotions and then the gymnastics that the hypocrite can bind themselves in? Oh, absolutely. We're both attorneys. We both know that the most important currency that we have is our own personal capital, our own personal mm -hmm. credibility. That yes. when we go before a judge or we, quote, uh, we make an argument, we don't sacrifice our personal integrity just to reach that goal. 
I yeah. think a lot of politics is uh, chasing the dragon. Donald Trump got everybody addicted to winning. You're going to love winning so much, you're going to get sick of winning. When winning becomes the ultimate goal rather than how you win, buffoonery happens. The example I give in the book is the, the issue of impeachment. Uh, I gave uh, examples of two speeches, one made by Lindsey Graham, one made by uh, Jerry Nadler. And they took the exact opposite positions that they had, depending upon if it was, if it was the, the impeachment of Bill Clinton or the impeachment of Donald Trump. Literally the right. same arguments. <laughs> That's when you know that you have no more personal capital left to trade off of. Uh, the justification of Brittany Griner. Let's talk about the surface level. Everyone can agree we don't want Americans in jail for crimes that they commit, especially when they are disproportionately punished given the nature of the crime. Brittany right. Griner in, in Russia... Uh, having possession of, you know, some, some, I think, think it was like an e-pen with, with, uh, cannabis oil or something like that. That's not worth nine years hard labor in a Russian, uh, labor camp. It's just, right. not. we all recognize that that's wrong. We all recognize that she should come back. Now we talk about, well, what does it take? What is, you know, the way to get to that goal? Is the way to get to that goal to sacrifice our own national capital, our own national credibility, by releasing someone who is responsible for many murders and is called the merchant of death, I think a lot of people would question that exchange as to whether, you know, reaching the goal of getting Brittany Griner out is worth putting this dangerous, objectively dangerous person back into play internationally. Is that a choice that many people would make? Well, clearly, people would make that choice because they say, well, it's more important to get her home than anything else. The goal is more important than how we get to the goal. And I think a lot of people out there will say, no, that's just buffoonish to think of. Yes, we want her home. Of course we do. Any human being with emotions can relate to the feeling of being trapped overseas or that family's feelings of having a loved one trapped overseas. Mm -hmm. But at the same time... You can't sacrifice your own personal credibility to justify making a bad decision to get that person home. And again, it, it all depends on, on the lens that you're looking at. Um, I'm sure for her family, they don't care who the merchant of death is. They care that, that their daughter, their sister, their family member, their friend is home. They don't care about the consequences of that. And I can understand that. But when you are in office and you're responsible for 400 million people and you're making decisions like that, based upon winning a political point for your side, which is really what I think the perspective of the Biden White House was. That's why they chose to try to get Brittany Griner out rather than uh, the, the U.S. Marine, whose name is escaping right now, Whalen, uh, try to get him out as well, or whether they could or not. Then it becomes, why are you using your, your political capital? You're using it to effectuate a win for the people in the jerseys that you're wearing, right? Right. That's not leadership. That is pandering. That's that's squandering your personal and your political capital. Yes. I think what's upsetting too is that when these kind of decisions are are made that are like you said designed to win the points for um the Biden administration's side. I think what's frustrating is that it's always a go-to of mentioning race and sex or gender as at the forefront of that decision. You know, when he's picking a nominee for the Supreme Court, he's sure to say and remind everyone like, hey, I'm following through on my promise. I said that I would put a black woman on the Supreme Court and that, um, you know, I would make that happen. And then, you know, he is able to free Brittany Griner and he, he has his press secretary point out that it's very important that she was brought home because she is um, a black member of the LGBT community. Um, and so that's frustrating when there's in the midst of like such division and, you know, really disagreements on how that should have been carried out, that then he takes his administration takes those moments to inject um, race and sex into that. And I think that just adds to um to the upsetness. I, I, I get what you're saying. 
I have such sympathy for Justice Brown Jackson because for so many Americans, she's going to be the person that was only chosen because of her immutable characteristics, because of her gender, because of her race. Not because she's probably a brilliant lawyer and has a track record of of making decisions on the bench. Could you imagine if Joe Biden would have said, yeah, I'm picking the best person for the job. And by the way, this person is not only groundbreaking, but the best person for the job. The same thing with uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who was chosen to be press secretary after Jen Psaki uh, resigned. It wasn't that she was the best person for the job. She checked the boxes. She was female. Mm -hmm. She was African-American. She was part of the LGBTQ community. All of that is great. I really don't care about your personal sex life. I don't really care about, uh, you know, what your your personal background is. I want to know you can do the job. There yeah. are so many issues of competency in government. Yes. Look at, this, uh, Sam Br- look at this Sam Brinton guy that we just recently heard about, who, you know, was, was first, I, I guess, was transgender... In, in the cabinet, in the cabinet position, in like an undersecretary position in, in the Department of Energy, mm-hmm. I didn't care that he wore dresses or high heels or, or whatever. I care that he's a criminal, apparently. Right. And he's going around stealing luggage from people. I right. care whether or not Corrine Jean Pierre can competently transmit information from White House to reporter or from White House to me by watching the briefing. I certainly care whether Justice Brown Jackson, and I'm sure she can, given you know her actual professional credentials, can analyze a legal issue from the bench and ask pointed questions in order to come to a reasoned decision. It doesn't have to be a decision right. I agree with, but a reasoned decision. There needs to be a return to credentials. But the problem is there are so many people in politics today that say even looking at credentials are racist. They say that math is racist. They say that English is racist. They say that learning history is racist because you're only learning certain history. When, and listen, like as I said, I'm no spring chicken, but I certainly rem- remember learning about the the uh, blemishes and the the dark points of American history. I remember learning about you know the the evils that of slavery and what happened in Reconstruction and the rise of KKK and Japanese yeah. internment camps. I remember learning about all that. It wasn't just all sunshine and lollipops during American history. And that's something, by the way, that the book reinforces. That it definitely wasn't that. It was wild. It was crazy. Uh, And in a lot of ways, it was embarrassing in a lot Mm -hmm. of respects. There is a way to convey convey that and and, and return to this idea of objective truths and subjective arguments. You're allowed to have subjective arguments in the classroom about different points and you have debates about policy points and things like that. Of course, we should encourage that. We should encourage natural curiosity, as I said before. But there has to be an idea of objective truth, that a person is objectively qualified to handle position, that something yes. objectively happened without putting any sort of subjective spin on what happened. Enough mm-hmm. of the articles about saying... Lauren Boebert was reelected and she did A, B, C, and D to Biden during the State of the Union, or she said this or that. Just tell me she was reelected. That's an objective truth, you know? Yes. Let's get back to that point, and then we can bring in the debates, as long as we have a baseline understanding of what it is we're debating. Yes. That is so frustrating, is that people are seeking out those unbiased, just the facts. <laughs> we just want the facts. That's all. And like you said, we can't get the baseline. At some point, we st- we as a society started caring more about the gotcha moments than mm-hmm. we did about the facts underlying those gotcha moments. Yes. Uh, I'll point again to the fact that we're lawyers and that we have to deal in facts. There are points in an argument, as you well know, where you have to lay out facts pretty neutrally. You can try to mm-hmm. persuade in, in giving your your assessment of facts. But at some point, you have to recognize that at the corner of, of Maine and First, a one car struck another. 
That's an objective fact. You can get into yes. why it happened. The road, the road was slick. That's another objective fact. Uh, the person wasn't looking. That could be another objective fact. And then we can get into, well, you know, the education level of the person who who got the license shouldn't have gotten the license because A, B, C, and D. If you wanted to argue a policy point. But we've lost the plot. Collectively, we've become very much a frivolous society that we care more about the gotcha moments. We care more about owning the opponent than we mm-hmm. care more about making sure that our own house is in order. You know, it's gotten to the point where... We, we we really are very silly. We care more about, you know, the starting lineup of the Yankees and what's going on there than we do with what bills are pending in our own state legislature. Uh, and, and I invite people to use that natural curiosity to deal with the things that impact them more. Listen, when I was growing up, I, I was the, hu- the biggest Knicks fan, God help me. I was the biggest Mets fan, God help me. Uh, still am, by the way, but that's another story. That's my own buffoonery. And we, you know, the, those are the things that I cared about. As I grew up, I started caring about other things, you know, political stuff, uh, history, whatever the case may be. But we've really turned into this frivolous society where we care about that 30 second video where we're owning the libs or the libs are owning that, you know, that really horrible person, Ted Cruz or whomever, you know, Donald Trump is evil. Or he's Donald Trump is stupid, but you can't reconcile between the two because if he's evil, how can he be stupid? And if he's stupid, is he really evil? We don't care about that because we just care about really espousing our own opinion, being right all the time, and we've lost that that sort of objectivity that a lot of today's politics and a lot of today's news has blurred for almost a generation now. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. I was um, watching someone who was like interviewing people out on the street on Instagram and he spoke to some, he was talking to younger people about how they felt about 9-11. And so many of them did not remember it. They did not uh, grow up with it. They felt, um, I would say, dissociated in a way from it. And like it was something that happened to other people that was a long time ago and that didn't matter. And that was so scary to me because I can remember like yesterday when um, when September 11th happened and I have friends who uh, were police officers or firefighters during that time. Um, so that's scary. It's very scary to think that as the news becomes more biased and as um, education becomes more biased and everywhere becomes more biased and slanted that we're losing our ability to reason. We're losing our ability to be informed. We're losing our ability to avoid um, this buffoonery. So um, what would be your advice moving forward and, and having people be interested in staying informed? What would be your advice and avoiding people coming into office who, who exhibit a lot of these traits? So, well, okay, so let's see. How do you solve world peace? Um, well, the, way you, no, the, way you, the way you do it is, is a couple of things. Uh, always remember character matters. I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. If you're a bad person, you're a bad person. Look towards that person's character, but not in ways that they want you to look at them. You know, they, they, they want to portray an image. Mm-hmm. I want you to look at how people are acting when they don't know the cameras on them. Go to a town hall meeting. See how that candidate interacts with somebody else. If they dismiss them off to the side and don't really actively listen to them and they go over and talk to that big wig that they know and pays more attention to them, that could be a red flag to you. Look, mm-hmm. look how they treat their opponents. Do they treat their opponents with respect, with dignity? That might be a red flag to you as well. The second thing, and, and I've said this many times already, be curious. Ask why. Why do things happen in government the way they happen? Why do bills go to committee? What are the arguments that go to committee? Who writes the bills? What do the bills say? You don't have to be knowledgeable on every single bill that's going on, but definitely be knowledgeable about the most important issues in your community, whether it be locally, at your town level, county level, city level, uh, state level, whatever, whatever have you. You know, right now I'm paying a close attention to my governor, who I didn't vote for, whether or not she's going to sign a certain bill that's going to help out families who are suing for wrongful death. 
not everybody knows about this bill, but I'm paying close attention to it. And how she determines what to do there will go a long way towards impacting my life and the life of clients of mine. But will also tell me about the person's character, about why they decided or why to sign it or not to sign it. Find issues that are important to you. Look up where people stand on those issues. Ask questions. Be curious. Interact with your community at local levels. Civic association meetings are free to go to. If you have the time and the wherewithal to go, go. Get involved. Find out what's going on with the zoning of that building they're putting up around the corner from you. Find out what's going on with the sewer treatment plant that they're putting in, you know, different sewer mains or whatever. These are issues that are going to affect you. Because as I found out with an issue with a, a sewer in my a sewer plant in my area, sooner or later you're all going down the same river of crap together, no matter what plant you're in. <laughs> so you gotta find out you gotta find out about these things. Natural curiosity, question authority, and Look for character flaws that you would look for in a relationship itself. Uh, look for people being arrogant. Look for people being audacious. Look for people being dismissive. Look for people putting up a front that you think is not really them if they're trying to put on an act for you. Uh, just the same things that you would look for in looking for someone in a relationship, you can look for in your elected officials. It's the same bad qualities that you want to avoid. So those are the points that I think if, if we all start, started doing that and stopped relying on the partisan laundry, we'd all be better off for it. Yeah. You know, what's scary is that I think that there's a lot of people who do those things more for celebrities that they like or that they're interested oh God, in than they yes. do for the elected officials. And I love how your book points out that it's the same things that draw people to Hollywood as draw people into running for public office for the wrong reasons. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just look at the attention that was given to the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. Mm -hmm. Everybody was talking about it for weeks upon weeks. Everybody. Everyone had an opinion on what was going on, right? Everyone knew what, what uh, Amber Heard was wearing every day. People were speculating whether Johnny Depp was dating his female attorney. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, the, the intrigue there was ridiculous. But at the end of the day, what ruled out, what won out in that case? Objective fact-finding. The jury went in there and said, you know what, Ms. Heard, when you published A, B, C, and D in the Washington Post, that was completely wrong and contrary to law, and you deserve to be punished for it. The problem with politics is there isn't a jury system like that that will punish politicians for doing what they did wrong or what they illegally did. They That's a good point. Themselves, which they they police themselves, which is probably the worst type of policing, because they'll investigate themselves and find they did that they did nothing wrong, right? So yes, take the same interest in politics that you do with your favorite celebrity, your favorite band, and like I said, going going through Tinder or what, whatever you do in your life, where you judge the character of people in your life, because the people in politics may be a couple of degrees away from your life. But they have just as much as a, of an effect on your life as the people closest to you have. Wow. Powerful. Powerful. Well, Gene, I'm going to let you have the last word. Oh, thank you so much. Rachel, this has been so much fun to just talk with you. I, I feel guilty talking about plugging a book for money right now. Uh, so the book <laughs> is, I, I happen to have it right here. Schnooks, Crooks, Scoundrels, A Field Guide to Identifying Political Buffoons. Uh, it's available at Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and a multitude of places online. A little tip to everybody, get the ebook version. It's only 99 cents. You, you can get the paperback if you want to spend the money and you want to have a, a you know a, a, something new collecting dust on your shelf. But get the ebook version. It's 99 cents. I made it 99 cents because the message is more important than making money. I, I truly believe that. I mean, thank God I'm an attorney. And I'm, I'm doing okay for myself. I'm not you know, I'm not the 1%, but I'm also not, you know, the poorest of the poor either. I made it 99 cents to get it into as many hands as possible. I like to think it's pretty entertaining. Pick it up, and you can let me know directly uh, how you feel about it. You can find me on Facebook and on Twitter at G-B-E-R-A-R-D-E-L-L-I. I will certainly respond back to you. I have a website. It's called buffoonoftheweek.com. I'm going to be start updating it again real soon. Writing a book really took a lot of the sales out of me in far, as far as writing blogs every day and stuff. So I'm going to get that going real soon, including uh, doing some video work on YouTube and on Rumble, starting out with 
a little thing that we've done every year called Buffoon of the Year. Uh, it's going to be a set of videos going through the year, seeing who were the biggest buffoons in different categories based on the structure of the book. Uh, and you'll Ooh. see who was, you know, who was the uh, agenda gymnast of 2022? Who was the hack of 2022? <laughs> who was the radioactive of 2022? You'll get all the opinions on that uh, on YouTube and Rumble. And uh, listen, this, like I said, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I would love to keep talking to you for a number of hours, but we both have to get back to our lives. Uh, Rachel, this was fun. This was so much fun. Yes, it was. So yes, much. it was. I could talk to you all day. Oh, I could talk to you all day. If you guys don't buy the Aww. book for anything else, buy it because it has amazing, amazing political cartoons inside that will keep you oh, entertained. Yes. While you're <laughs> yes. shout, out, shout out to my friend John Panisi. He did all the cartoons for the book. He is a sports cartoonist that's going to now get oh. thanks to this. And uh, cool. he, yeah, he's done he's done so much great work for the New York Yankees, for the Baseball Writers Association of America. John is tremendous. And Evan Sayed, uh, Evan Sayed, who wrote the forward, uh, is a, a tremendous speaker. So much of a better speaker and so much more eloquent than I am. Uh, and he lent his brilliance to the forward. Uh, definitely com. Check out all his work. He's written some great books as well. Uh, Evan was actually a a uh, comedy writer for Bill Maher uh, when he was doing a wow. correct on ABC. So he wow. has a long history of turning from liberal to conservative, and mm -hmm. he's just an amazing human being. EvanSayIt.com. I can't say it enough. It's E-V-A-N-S-A-Y-E-T.com. A brilliant man who just ha so happens to be a good friend that, like I said, lent his genius to writing the forward and setting up everything in the book. Well, it's a fabulous book. And, um, you know, it's been cool seeing <laughs> Bill Maher over time make more and more and more sense as time goes on and the world gets crazier. Um, that's another show. <laughs> that's a whole other show. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I know we'll be in touch and I can't wait to see just how this book picks up traction and, and more people read it and enjoy it like I have. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.